and welcome to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David Johnson, and across from me is Dale... Oh, wait a minute. What? Randall Rouser, how you doing? Hey, yeah, it's uh, great to be with you. Yeah, Not Dale. You're not Dale, no, but you're both Canadians, and so I guess it's kind of the same. Um, yeah, well, we seem, you meet one Canadian, you meet them all. Right, well, you know what? I, I used to think... Uh, I used to think that. In fact, I had this uh, misconception that all Canadians were really, really nice guys. And then I ran into you. Um, so <laughs> you've already begun the education process. There, There is this stereotype that Canadians are polite, and I've been trying to deconstruct that for many years. <laughs> well, sir, uh, welcome to the podcast. Today we are going to be uh, talking about the subject of progressive revelation. And this is a very important uh, subject to me. It falls under the category a larger category of what's called hermeneutics, uh, the art and science of interpreting uh, documents, in particular the Bible. And I, I was a particular fan of hermeneutic studies when I was a Christian, and I find it uh, very interesting now, even as a non-Christian, uh, to it, it, it's really helpful in understanding how people look at the source material, because both Christians and atheists, we're still looking at the Bible, we're still deconstructing the same source material, but we look at it very differently. And uh, so one of the tools in that hermeneutical toolbox is progressive revelation. Uh, and so we're going to define that uh, as, we, as we move along. And um, since I orig- made the, the originating argument against uh, progressive revelation, I'm going to go ahead and get us started. And I want to start with a quote from Randall. By the way, if you have not read the blog, uh, please go to skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. That's skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. Uh, you'll find the blog post there from myself and Randall. Uh, in his uh, closing, uh, closing couple of paragraphs, this is what he had to say, and it's a great place to pick up. In closing, let's consider this question. If correct information about nature, God, and the ethical life are all important for human flourishing, as they presumably are, then why does God only release this information progressively over a long period of time? Now, I think that's an excellent question and an excellent place to start. And I think that uh, part of Randall's responsibility today is to answer that question. I also think that part of my responsibility is to uh, explain why, in fact, uh, that is not a good idea. And so uh, we're going to begin this conversation uh, on progressive revelation with a little bit of back and forth because we want to define the terms that we're going to use. After we do that sufficiently, I will uh, go ahead and make my case uh, for why I think that progressive revelation is the wrong idea and let Randall make his case for why it is. And we'll have a bit, of, uh, bit more back and forth. I've got uh, I've got a few pages of notes, so settle in, folks. Uh, Randall, can I start by asking you a question about revelation? What what does it mean to you that something is revealed, especially that something is revealed to the uh, through the Bible? So, before talking about progressive revelation, how does revelation even work? Oh, well, great questions. Good to start with basics. Uh, I think first of all, as I described in the article, we can talk about revelation in a very general sense, even apart from God, apart from religious concepts. And just to appreciate that there's there's something here, a conceptual 
core, which is shared across the spectrum of experience. And it is revelation involves the core things. There is the revelation itself, which is a new sense of awareness that comes upon an individual. The individual upon which it comes is the one revealed to. And then typically there is also a revealer. Uh, now, it can happen, for example, in a topic like mathematics or um, inventing something, trying to invent something, figure out how to do something in a novel way, suddenly getting some kind of subject matter. Or if you remember in the late 1990s, it was really popular on the back of magazine covers to have these these geometrical patterns and you're supposed to stare at them for a long time. And then if you looked at them right in the center dot, suddenly a three-dimensional image would spring out of it. And that is a sort of phenomenological description of something like revelation, that you're looking at something, you're trying to figure it out. Suddenly this illumination comes upon you and you now understand it in a new way that you didn't before. So this is a general human experience we have to have the experience of being one revealed to and to gaining a new insight of revelation. When it comes to scripture, the idea is that there are certain aspects of God, his nature, what he expects of us, what we are as human creatures, which is revealed to us in scripture and through this process of revelation. Now, there are two aspects here. The one aspect is the revelation itself, which is both the experience of the original writers of some kind of relationship that they had with God and also the experience of the revelation of the text to the reader as they now read what that person has written down. And in addition, there is another concept of inspiration and inspiration links those two things. So it goes like this. God reveals himself in some particular way to a particular individual or a group of people in the past in some way that that is codified, written down in some kind of text. And the text itself is now a record of that and is thereby inspired. And then the other person, the later reader, me or you, comes along, reads the text, and then we can now have our own revelatory insight into the nature of God and what he expects of us based upon this inspired text. Okay, so how does, how does God get the information from himself to the, to the writer? Yeah, there are, I, one of the questions, so you've raised this great top term hermeneutics or interpretation. And so when we come to the Bible, what we do is we have a library of ancient texts. And what we really have to do is, first of all, pay attention to the fact that these are different genres of literature. And insofar as they are different types of literature, they're different genres with different rules of interpretation. There are also different explanations for how these different texts were formed over time. So, for example, you have the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of wisdom literature. Some of that wisdom literature is not unique to the Hebrews. There is something called the wisdom of Anamenope, which also appears in Proverbs. Uh, it was ancient, other ancient Near Eastern wisdom that the Hebrews recognized as inspiring, and they appropriated it into their texts. The origin of the book of Proverbs is going to be very different than perhaps the book of Isaiah, which comes to us as a prophetic text, or the epistles in the New Testament, which come to us as specific or general letters shared amongst people, or the gospels, which are written as historical biographies of this person, Jesus. So each one of them was written down with different rules according to the kind of genre, the intention and purpose of the original writer. And that is inevitably going to shape what our account is of how it was thereby written down and what we understand when we say it's inspired. 
Okay, so I, I don't want to overly dwell on this point, but this is this point is going to undergird uh, a lot of our discussion. So I just want to uh, tease out uh, one or two other things. So you mentioned progr- uh, prophetic writings. Are there some revelations that are more direct than others? So, uh, in other words, you know, one type of revelation may be uh, a, a guy on a pilgrimage, uh, fasting for 40 days, uh, and, you know, he writes down poetry. And it turns out that's pretty good, and we consider that um, scripture one day. And then maybe another thing is God speaks directly to a prophet and says, say this to the people. So just just kind of giving a, a range, a possible range of ways it's given. Are the, Would you say that the Bible is a more direct type of revelation or a more indirect type of revelation? Yeah, great question. I I think the the answer is that it really depends upon the kind of text we're talking about. So uh, where it comes to the book of Proverbs, as I said, I suspect that what's going on certainly in the book of Proverbs is that this is more of an expression of natural wisdom, which is then God appropriates that. He affirms that to be part of his canon of scripture. And so it ends up being in the text, but it doesn't mean that there is necessarily any unique spiritual experience that happened to the original writer of the proverb, but rather God subsequently appropriated that and brought it into his text. I think there are many other texts that are similar to that as well, such as in the Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of experiences, of human experiences. They're experiences of things such as suffering and doubt and questioning and anger and joy. And I think those can be human experiences that God appropriates into his text. Now, there's other places, such uh, such as 2 Peter 1.21, where the writer says, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. Mm-hmm. But prophets through human uh, humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that seems to say that there were some contexts where there was more of an immediate or direct acting upon the person. And if you did take that, then that would be a model that you might apply to some passages of Scripture, such as prophetic texts, but you wouldn't perhaps apply to others, such as the Proverbs. Okay. Well, that, that helps me uh, get a grasp on it, because I, I can imagine that some of the things— uh, that I might point out later, you know, might fall into a uh, a lesser category of revelation than, say, other things. But it, it the reason it's important is because we're going to talk about errors later. And it's it's one thing to say, well, you know, this text was an ancient text and it was appropriated by God for whatever reason, but it contained errors. And it's another thing to say that errors... Uh, are in a place where God more directly um, delivered the text. That would that would be problematic. Do, do, do you at least see where I would say that that would be problematic? Well, I would say first of all that we need to go back. I mean, I can certainly I can appreciate where you're coming from, but it also goes back to our expectations as to what Scripture is and how it functions. So I quoted a minute ago from 2 Peter one twenty one, another verse that is uh, two verses that are really important here, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. In fact, many people consider this as sort of the central text for understanding this concept of scriptural inspiration. So uh, in this epistle, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. 
the Greek is theopnistos, so breathed in or inspired. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So this is important because what Paul says is he he gives all Scripture this quality of being God-breathed or inspired, but then he explains what he means by God-breathed. And what he means is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what that says to me is not that um, minimally every factual assertion of every human author that is found in the biblical text is without error. It could mean that, but uh, that's not actually what the text says. What it says is it is useful for achieving the ends of transforming individuals to make them servants of God, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there are many texts in the Bible where we can see what appear to be morally problematic verses or content or, or problematic or error in, uh, errant in some other way. And one of the things I would want to caution us is about thinking this is simply a matter of God dispensing facts rather than God giving us this text that he wants us to read in order to be transformed. Okay. Well, and just so the audience knows and so that you know, I come from a background of uh, inerrantists. So uh, say that the, the reading that you just gave from uh, Timothy is very important to me, too. We just read it uh, differently than you do. Uh, just out of curiosity, have you ever been an inerratist? Did you, did you kind of move toward your position, or have you always had the position that you have now? Yeah, good question. Um, I was raised in... Um, Pentecostal church that I would call fundagelical. I tell this story in my book, What's So Confusing About Grace? And so I sort of was given, I would call it a naive understanding of inerrancy. Now, one of the challenges with inerrancy that I found is uh, the more you begin to try to define what that actually means, uh, the more the very doctrine itself as a qualification of scripture begins to kind of crumble away in your hands. So one problem, obviously, is, well, which text is, in, is inerrant? It's certainly not the translations we have, because they are errant. Right. Uh, neither is it the received texts of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic that we have from which we get the Bible, because there are variant readings in those texts. Right. So the inerrantist says, okay, well, the inerrant versions are, are lost to us. Okay, but the next question is, uh, what about the error of the reader? Well, the reader can bring errors to the text. Uh, another problem is, well, does inerrancy mean it was the intent of the original author? Because I think that's actually not a very plausible view at all. To just give you an example, in Psalm 37, the psalmist says that God laughs at the destruction of the wicked. Well, not only does that contrast or contradict other places in Scripture, such as uh, Ezekiel 18.23, that says God doesn't laugh at the coming destruction of the wicked, it also seems to be fundamentally irreconcilable with the vision that Jesus gives us of God. So it seems to me that to say that the psalmist who was describing God in these terms had to be without error is, is just a problematic way to think about the text. I think we have to see the text functioning at a different level in its authority than necessarily at the intentions of the human author. Okay. Uh, so I will I will leave that there. I um, I would I would say that the example you gave about God laughing at that I would I would as a fundamentalist uh, growing up I would have agreed with that that God uh, takes pleasure in the uh, fate of the wicked and I would have I would have followed that up with saying yeah you know he'll he'll even give you strong delusions so that you believe a lie. Um, so it is. 
it is possible to have a, 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 some confusion, let's say, uh, about the text and intent when there seem to be contradictory statements and ideas in the Bible. And I, I guess it's a bit of a Rorschach test as to which ideas we latch on to uh, and, uh, you know, how we paint our God from those various views. Uh, the God that I painted wasn't a very good God. And maybe that says more about me than the God of the Bible. But I, I actually think it says something about the God of the Bible. And I think that there is some redemption in me because I left, I left faith in that kind of God. So uh, that said, um, I, I, I believe that what you would probably say is, yeah, you don't, you don't believe in that particular God either, uh, or something to that effect. But moving on, progressive. Uh, so now that I've got a little bit of an idea of, of what Revelation is, and trust me, I, I could talk about that all night. Uh, what do you mean by progression uh, in Revelation? So let me, let me ask it uh, this way. Uh, are all revelations progressive or can some just be offered in one short, complete uh, manner without any need for clarification later? Oh, well, um, I'm not sure. Like, are you just asking that in terms of any discovery about the world at all? No, or? Uh, specifically uh, about uh, the progressive revelation as it relates to God in ethics and religion, the Bible, um, you know, are there, are there some things that in the Bible, for instance, that are revealed all at once, um, and that, that do not change over time or that, that do not progress or is everything open to a progression of understanding? Well, uh, so for example, we have the famous Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, thy God, the Lord is one. Uh, I don't think that that has changed, or the name of God being revealed to us in, in Exodus 3 is, I am that I am, or I am who I will be, depending how you want to interpret uh, the translation of the Hebrew, uh, I will be what I will be. Um, that hasn't changed, but our understanding about that can change over time. It can become more nuanced, it can become deepened. Uh, just like when you meet another person for the first time, they might tell you, you know, for example, their occupation, and you kind of know what that occupation is. You gain a new fact in that moment. It's a new revelation. It's not going to change. You know, let's say that this person says, oh, I'm a, I'm a nurse, and you have your understanding already of what nurses are, and so you know that they're a nurse. That's not going to change. But what may change over time is you're going to come to understand what this occupation or this vocation is in a fuller sense as you get to know this person, as you see what they do, as you see how they interact with the sick and so on. And so there's a lot of room for changing, developing, deepening the concepts that are revealed to us, even if some core of the concept doesn't change over time. Okay, so let me, let me give an, uh, a more tangible example. Uh, then just to flesh this out a little bit, uh, not not trying to stir up uh, controversial things. These are just I'm just thinking about the things that are easiest to um, to talk about. So uh, women in the New Testament, Paul uh, tells them to remain silent in the church, and he he gives his reasons for doing that. The reasons that Paul gives for women to remain silent seem to be reasons that are not bound in time so much. Uh, he 
talks about things. He says, has an offhand statement like, in because of the angels. And um, he talks about the order of creation and things like that. And so he has views about women's head covering and, and women remaining silent. And yet we... So we, today we have, you know, a, a large part of uh, Christendom that still tries to hang on to that in some way, and another part that says, no, no, we we don't need to hang on to that at all. We've progressed beyond that. So um, I, I guess what I'm asking, I'm not asking so much, is that an example of of something that should be taken? as read a, a given command that is complete in and of itself. But are there, you know, you can, you can see where some would read that as a given command that's complete and some would re- read it as a progressive revelation that can progress. And I guess what I'm asking is everything in the Bible, is that subject to uh, interpreting based on a progression or are there some things that can be taken as read? It says this, and this is what it means for all time. So I guess uh, one thing we want to do is to begin by, uh, going back and always keeping in mind that the script, scripture is a library, and so there are these different these different genres of literature, and we have to begin by considering what is each one of these doing. So if we, we want to quote a proverb, it says, you know, train your children in the ways of the Lord. When they grow up, they will not depart from them. Uh, now, is that an exceptionless norm, or should we understand that as a general principle? And I think that we can have a good reason to understand that as a general principle, because that's the way wisdom literature functions. It doesn't give you ironclad exceptionless laws. It gives you general principles for wise living. So when we come to something that Paul says about women and gender relations, he says it within the context of a particular epistle, a letter to a church, such as the church he wrote to Corinth in in the year 55, approximately. And one of the things we want to keep in mind is that Paul is dealing with particular issues in that church in that time, and that may lead us to contextualize what he says there for that church in that time, which is just the same way as if you're writing a letter to someone, uh, you might say something that taken out of context could become an exceptionless norm, but maybe within the context of the issue you were addressing becomes nuanced. Now you have Christians disagreeing over this, right? You have some that are complementarians, uh, some that are egalitarians. And so the, the first group, complementarians, interpret Paul and what he says in a particular way. Egalitarians interpret it in a different way. Uh, and they disagree in that sense. So there is a complexity. There is room here for reasonable disagreement as to what Paul is doing. But I would just issue the caution that uh, we, we have to always keep in mind, well, what is the context of this text historically? What is the genre of literature that it is written in? And those will give us some good clues to begin to wrestle with interpretation and application. Okay. Um all right, and so one more one more definition that I'd like to clarify because uh, reading your article, you spend a lot of time uh, talking about accommodation, and uh, I think that's a, a very important uh, thing to understand here. So, I, I guess from a very simplistic uh, perspective, I would ask, why would God ever accommodate error uh, when He could just correct it? Uh, so I don't I don't really understand that, especially when I've heard uh, Christians give specific examples of things that God accommodated. Um, and then I look at uh, things that he didn't accommodate, things that he said, no, you either do this or die. Uh, and so I don't understand accommodation in the context of, of 
scripture and how how God dealt with people. So maybe you can maybe you can talk about accommodation a little bit. Yeah. So again, I'd say for anyone listening, make sure you've read because uh, what we wrote beforehand, because I, I do give an explanation there. Accommodation is trying to to bring a concept into an accessible way for a particular individual. Uh, and now this is a very core Christian idea. Um, John Calvin famously described God as like a, a, a mother who's lisping, lisping to her little child, like doing baby talk for her children. And, and because God is so much greater and intellectually and otherwise than us, he has to come down to our level. Um, in fact, Christians will say that the incarnation of Jesus is the ultimate accommodation. And note something about the incarnation. The incarnation can be misunderstood. A person could conclude, okay, so God just is and has always been this human being. But another way to think about it is God taking on human form, meeting us, at the level that we're at in order that we can better understand certain aspects of who he is. Uh, not to give a trade example, but, but Philip Yancey gives this example. He, he says, you know, he has this tank full of goldfish. And when he comes up to the, to the tank, they all swim away from him. They're all scared by him. For him to truly become, uh, to know the goldfish and them to know him would be for him to become one of them, to be able to enter into the tank with them. And that is something analogous to what God does with human beings. And so one of the core issues here with accommodation is the end of developing relationship. And I'll just give you a personal example and then turn it back to you. So my daughter's a, a teenager now, but uh, about 12, 13 years ago when she came out of uh, school, kindergarten, she's all excited. And she's, she, she tells me, you know, daddy, bears sleep all winter. It's called hibernation. Now, what I said to her was, oh, really? Wow, tell me more. Now, you could say what I was doing there was being dishonest because what I was conveying to her was that I was ignorant of the fact that bears hibernate and I thereby misled her about my already knowledge that bears hibernate. What I would say, however, is that that's to miss the bigger picture. What I was doing was accommodating her, coming down to her level, engaging with her as a fellow co-traveler, talking with her, acting as if I didn't know something, to the end of developing my personal relationship and interaction with her. And if we think about it in those terms, we can appreciate, I think, the fact that we actually accommodate in various contexts with other people in order to develop relationships with them, and God does the same. Okay. So I, th I think that's a good uh, primer for what's about to come next, because it, now as I make my case, and as you make your case, at least we have um, some pretty firm ideas about foundational principles. There are a couple of other uh, foundational principles in uh, your article that I'm, that I'm going to uh, talk about uh, in our later back and forth. But uh, right now, I would like to go ahead and make a six-point case uh, against progressive revelation. I'll run through these uh, very quickly, and I'll swing back around and expand on some of them uh, after you've had a chance to make your case. So um, point number one, revelation through viewed through a faulty uh, filter or framework is always regressive not progressive. Later, we're going to talk about the, the frameworks uh, through which uh, revelation comes. Uh, number two, progressive revelation is inexcusable when better methods are available. Uh, so again, I, I want to impact that uh, a little bit later. Even when progressive 
uh, even when progressively revealing something, it doesn't seem to take hundreds of years to teach complete truths about things such as nature, God, and ethics, especially when those are the most important things that humans can learn. So uh, even if I were to agree uh, with, with some cases of progressive revelation, I would, uh, I would argue that it, it doesn't take thousands of years uh, or even hundreds of years. And so there, there needs to be a cap on it. Otherwise, it, it's just indistinguishable from humans uh, evolving their knowledge naturally without any type of revelation. Uh, number the next one. Uh, if everyone gets revelation at different uh, at a different rate, it is impossible to know who is right. Uh, so how do we determine who is furthest along in the progression versus who's just wrong? Uh, the uh, number five, what some call progressive revelation seems to just be a way of correcting errors. Uh, now, if the Bible has errors on this scale, it's not really authoritative anyway. Uh, we need some way of being able to tell the errors from the corrections from the errors. Uh, and so I think that biblical er errors put a little bit of a, uh, add, add a lot of complexity to figuring out what is supposed to be progressive revelation for that, for that matter, what is supposed to be revelation and what isn't. Uh, and my final point, how do we know uh, when a revelation has fully progressed or is everything just an open question? And again, I would say if, if progressive revelation, then no one can actually ever say, okay, this is, the, this is the fullness of that revelation. And everything becomes an open question. And again, it's indistinguishable from just humans uh, evolving their knowledge as we go. So that's my, uh, that's my case. And I will turn it over to Randall to make his. Well, there's so you have six claims there. Now, I think each one of those claims could be a conclusion, um, but I'd, I'd want to hear more of supporting argumentation, you know, supporting premises for each of those claims, because I would, I suppose I would challenge all of those as conclusions. Um, and it would sort of probably take a few more podcasts to go through all of that. Would, would there be one or two, something that you say, well, this is really seminal, this is core to my objection, and maybe we could focus on that and have some back and forth on it? Yeah, sure. Um, but I, so I definitely plan to do that. But it, did, you, did you want to make just a, a positive statement about uh, progressive revelation in general? Uh, okay, so well, in general, I mean, uh, uh, an argument for pro progressive revelation is essentially related to an argument for Christianity. Because Christianity is at, is at its heart a progressive, a claim of progressive revelation, that God has revealed Himself in nature. That's a clear teaching of Scripture. Places such as Psalm 19, Romans chapter one, Romans chapter two, and so on. And then God has revealed Himself specially to throughout salvation history or Heilsgeschichte, to use the German. So God reveals Himself to Abraham. God reveals Himself through Moses and through the ancient Israelites. And that revelation really culminates in this person, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God 2,000 years ago, who establishes this church. And then through the ensuing centuries, there is a further clarification and understanding of that New Testament deposit of revelation from which you get the articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the incarnation, a fuller understanding of this theology of atonement. Uh, and then you get various ecclesial forms developing from that as well. And a Christian can understand 
that whole scope as part of progressive revelation. So to argue for progressive revelation, I would say just as to make the case for Christianity itself, to argue, give arguments, reasons to believe in the existence of God, to give arguments for the historical person of Jesus, for his resurrection, for the, you could argue for the authority of scripture, all sorts of other things. You could begin to build a case uh, for the truth of Christianity, and that's where you get your argument for progressive revelation. Okay. I, uh, I thought that you might uh, want to talk about your uh, the pedagogical uh, angle, which I thought was a good point that you made in the article. By the way, if you haven't read the uh, blog yet, skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. Uh, go ahead and read the uh, blog, and Randall does unpack uh, uh, a positive case uh, that I don't, I don't know we'll be able to get to it all here, but it, it's, uh, it's definitely worth reading. One of those, one of those things that you talked about uh, was how uh, progressive revelation works uh, in education. Did you want to say anything about that, being an educator? Sure. So, yeah, that does link up, up a little bit with what I was saying earlier, which is the very concept of revelation itself is a um, a concept that is not essentially religious. It's just the phenomena, describes the phenomenon of coming to new knowledge or new insight into some aspect of reality. Uh, and I said, for the most part, revelation generally of the world is progressive around us. So uh, I mentioned you get a new friend who's a nurse, you discovered this vocation of nursing, and your understanding of that vocation is a progressive revelation of sorts over time. In fact, your relationship with that person as a friend is a progressive revelation of that person over time. That's what friendship is. It's to gradually reveal something of yourself to another. And so I think God is doing this as well as he interacts with us, develops relationships with us. Now, I guess I could give a very concrete example of this concept of accommodation, which I maybe recap something I said in the article. Uh, a trivial example, well, Maybe a simple example, we'll say. Uh, an English grammar teacher wants to give students an understanding of the rules of the English spelling. So they give this principle, I before E, except after C. It's a simple and memorable and straightforward principle, and it immediately helps to begin to yield insight, a revelation into the bewildering territory of English spelling. Gradually, the student will learn as they become more sophisticated that that is not an absolute rule and it has qualifications, such as Orwin sounding like A is a neighbor and way. In that case, the E comes before the I. And so you realize, well, the principle wasn't perfect, but the principle was an accommodation which yielded a progressive revelation to the nature of the English language. And I think you have a similar phenomenon in theology, which I briefly described a moment ago, talking about the experience of God through Israel and the church. Okay. So that gets into your idea of technical falsehoods. I want to go ahead and honor your request, though, just a moment uh, before getting there, because you asked me to pick one or two things and, and unpack them. I wasn't ignoring that. I just wanted to give the uh, audience a chance to uh, hear a, a fuller version of your case. Uh, so uh, starting with, uh, oh, let's say the second one, because I'm going to get to the first one uh, in a couple of minutes. Progressive Revelation, um, I, I make the claim, and you're correct, that it is a claim, that it's inexcusable when better methods are available. So I would suggest that one of the reasons we use progressive revelation, and I wouldn't call it progressive revelation, uh, actually, when, when talking about mundane things, progressive, progressive learning, progressive teaching, I, I'm not 
you know, the evolution of knowledge. Um, I think of revelation, I guess, in in more spiritual terms, even though it doesn't have to be uh, uh, spiritual. But when you add God into the mix, and you're saying that that now God is giving you particular knowledge, that that's a slightly different f- flavor than a student learning math. But that said, um, the reason we use a, a progressive type of teaching as humans is because we, we can't do any better. Uh, brains are undeveloped uh, when they're young, and then they develop a little bit more as they get older. They can't hold all of the information that, that they need to hold all at once. Uh, and so there is a, there's a time period that we kind of have to go through to learn something simply because there is a, there's a hard limit uh, on what we can learn all at once. Now, for those who are geniuses and can learn a lot more at once, guess what? We teach them more. We don't teach them at the same rate as, uh, as the average person because they're not the average person. So I would say that progressive revelation is uh, the way we teach because we have to. If a better method was available, uh, we, would, we would use that. And I, th- I think in the case of God, better methods uh, are available, especially for the things that he was trying to teach. So let me just give you a chance to respond to that. Are you familiar with the argument uh, from divine hiddenness against yeah. God? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because I think it would it maybe help to to present your case. It seems to me that uh, your case could be construed as an example of the argument from divine hiddenness. It can. So, in other words, um, if there were a God, well, let's let me we'll recap the argument from divine hiddenness mm-hmm. uh, developed by Canadian philosopher J. L. Schellenberg. The essence of the argument uh, it's a little different from the argument from the problem of evil. It says that well, there are people who really want to know who God is or if God exists. Uh, and, and so they are non-culpable non-believers because they, they lack the belief, but they really want to know if God exists. But if there were a God, he would reveal himself to them. So the fact that he seems to be hidden from them is, an, is evidence to believe that there is no such being as God because he would not be hiding himself. And I think similarly, we could present your argument um, as, well, if there were a God, he would use the maximally efficacious methods of revealing himself to creatures because there is no such maximal efficacious revealing of God to creatures that provides evidence that no such being as God exists. I mean, is that a fair take? Yeah, you're remarkably good at making the atheist case. You want to change sides? (laughs) I know that's okay. Um, So no, no. So I I mean, I want to say that I think that that is a that's a fair objection. It's a reasonable objection. My my challenge is going to be, I'm I'm not persuaded that the person who's raising the objection is really in a place to know that relative to the ends God wants to achieve ultimately, that this is not the most efficacious way to achieve those ends. That would be the essence of my uh, rebuttal to your objection. Okay, so you you are channeling my normal partner Dale uh, in in that response. That's a kind of a Molinistic uh, response of saying, well, you know, God has his uh, reasons, and you know, if we understood his ultimate reasons, then his methods uh, would be more clear. But we can never really question his reasons because we don't understand, uh, or his methods because we don't ultimately understand his reasons. Um, I think that only takes you so far. Uh, so I, I will grant that, but I don't, I think that 
that is a fairly overused argument that ex that tries to explain away uh, some fairly horrendous things. Um, can I just so, can I just interject and, yeah, and I'll throw it back to you? Because uh, again, I, I think it would help to to present our differences at this point like this. Um, I'm saying, um, you you uh, let me let me think how to put this. Um, that that your position is, I can see that God can't have sufficient reasons to reveal Himself in this seemingly ambiguous way. I'm saying, you can't know that you have those sufficient reasons. And so we just have a difference of intuition at this point. It seems to you that God just couldn't have those sufficient reasons to reveal himself in that way. And I'm, I'm rebutting that and saying, well, it seems to me uh, that you don't know that and that you're misreading your intuitions, that you're, you're moving from, I can't see how it could be the case to, I can see that it can't be the case. And there's an important difference there, right? To, to, to move from, I can't see how God could do this to, I can see that God can't do this. And I would challenge the move from the first point to the second point. Yeah, I don't deny that. Um, but what I would say is all I have is my intuition. Uh, to to make these kinds of judgments. So I am human with limited uh, knowledge and limited intuition, but that's the knowledge I have to make moral and ethical uh, choices. Um, so I, so we can we can put a pin in that, and and the audience can note that as a point of of difference. But let's let's see what else we can tease out of this conversation. I I uh, suggested that even when using progressive revelation, there's a there's a time limit. Uh, it, it just doesn't take uh, hundreds of years to teach certain things. Now, I, I am anticipating that your response will be much like what you uh, responded uh, just now. You know, maybe God has a reason for stringing the information out so long. Um, so I can, I can agree with you that progressive revelation makes sense because we have small brains and limitations. But we can pretty much take a person from age six to age 18 and teach them everything that they need to know about getting along in this world pretty well. And every 12th, every, every 12th grade graduate in, in this country, in your country, in the world, has a better grasp of basic things about the world than uh, just about all of the biblical writers. And so it seems like if God wanted to teach them things about the world and, and break through some of those misconceptions, he had a lot of time to do it and didn't do it. So that, that really lends itself to my case that what we have in the Bible is just an example of humans evolving their learning without any special revelation in the process. Okay, just a couple of things I want to say. First of all, uh, just to, to keep in mind... Uh, what Paul says in Romans 2, 14 and 15, he talks about Jews and Gentiles and you know everyone, in other words, being judged relative to the light they've been given so that God does not hold people accountable for things he has not revealed to them. We are accountable for the degree to which God has revealed himself to us. And, and so the first thing we want to keep in mind is that there isn't an objection to God's existence that he's holding us accountable for things we could not possibly know. And in some some way, to some degree, we know everything at some level to which we are held up accountable for. Um, now, I would want to push back that the way you're presenting the objection here is all focused on some data that we receive at the very end, the revelation. But what I would want to push back is to say that, uh, to use somewhat of a cliched expression, it's not a, just about the 
destination, it's about the journey. That there is some intrinsic value the person who holds to progressive revelation would believe, not only in knowing X, but coming to know X. The process of the human community in this way, over time, gradually coming to know God as God reveals God's self through history. There is intrinsic value in that, in the same way that there is intrinsic value, let's say, in struggling through climbing a mountain versus just getting dropped off at the top. The person who thinks, well, why don't you just fly a helicopter to the top of the mountain kind of misses the point of the intrinsic value of climbing the mountain. And I think we can think about progressive revolution in a similar manner. Okay. So uh, let's let's move to the next phase. I'm looking at the clock. Uh, I think that we're roughly around the 45-minute mark, and we might do this much again if you have time. Uh, but I want to I want to go ahead and move along to the next bits because I think they're very important to add in this conversation. Uh, I think for me the most interesting part of your article was uh, the part about technical falsehoods and um, the uh, the framework uh, God God teaching. Uh, new truths through old frameworks. I'm not sure how you put it, but I when I when I read what you said, my thought immediately went to new wine and old old wineskins. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but um, I, I think this really gets at at the heart of a lot of it. And so I wanted to I wanted to have a little bit of conversation about these two ideas. Let me start with the last one first, even though. Uh, the second one first. That's second in my notes, but it's it's on my mind right now. And if we don't get uh, to the other, I want to g- at least get to this. I think that there are some frameworks that have to be taken down uh, completely before you can build something proper on top of it. Uh, and I, I so I understand that some old frameworks you can work with. But there, there are other frameworks that are just detrimental uh, and are completely incompatible with the new thing uh, that you're teaching. And so accommodation doesn't really work uh, in those situations. So just, just to give an example, some concepts such as freedom and equality are incompatible with the framework of slavery. I just don't think that you can teach the concept of freedom through a framework of slavery or equality through a framework of slavery. Because what you end up with is something, some bastardized idea of the concept that is neither free nor equal. Uh, And so before you teach freedom and equality, you have to tear down the framework of slavery so that people understand what on earth you're talking about. Uh, so uh, I don't want to make this a, a debate about slavery, which often happens when, when that subject comes up in this kind of conversation. I think that you and I, uh, I'm just going to take a wild guess that you and I agree 100% about slavery. Uh, slavery is uh, a bad thing uh, every time for everyone, uh, everywhere, every when. Uh, so this is not what this is not what I'm trying to argue. I'm simply saying that if you're going to teach equality uh, and freedom, you would want to do so, and with the framework that slavery is a bad thing. In the Bible, 
God doesn't do that. He doesn't take down the framework of slavery. And I understand the pro- the progressive argument is that he took us from from one place, you know, through the Bible and beyond the Bible to a place where we could take the framework down. Um, but I would I would argue that the framework lasted as long as it did because God left the framework in place. Yeah, let me just say one thing about um, what you referenced at the very beginning, and then I'll talk about slavery. So you referenced this, you know, the idea of kind of a the accommodation to falsehoods or whatever to achieve the greater understanding. And I'll just say a great example of that is, as I said, the incarnation. But specifically, there's something in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that has long puzzled scholars, and that's the so-called messianic secret, mm-hmm. which is why does Jesus, why does he slowly reveal his messianic status, his status as Messiah or the Christ? Why doesn't he just ha- proclaim it from the rooftops? And I think the answer is... Uh, that the Jews of the time, by and large, had this understanding of Messiah as this conquering Messiah who would uh, go up against the Romans and defeat them. And what he had to do was to play the long game, to silence people when they called when he called them Messiah, in order to bring them to an understanding of what Messiah really is, and then allow the proclamation to go forth into the world. And so I think there's a lot to be said for that concept. Now you've you've hit on a, a difficult, challenging topic here, which is slavery, and I'll just. Um, Give you, for example, one response to that uh, is what is so-called trajectory hermeneutics, this idea that God is gradually revealing more of himself over time and his ultimate will for human beings. So you could argue here, and I'm just giving you one example, you could argue that God accommodated to some of the models of slavery in the ancient Near Eastern world, which, of course, are quite different from antebellum slavery in the United States. Uh, but then by the time we get to the New Testament, we have, for example, in the book of Philemon, where God asks Philemon to receive Onesimus back, an escaped slave, not just as a slave, but as a brother. Um, and you have this uh, in Galatians 3.28, where he says there is now no longer slave nor free. What you've got there is this trajectory toward liberation that you find in Scripture. So there is this movement toward uh, a fuller understanding of what God ethically requires to the understanding where slavery is actually not really in accord with God's will in the ultimate sense. You've pushed back on that, as, as, you, as you've said. Uh, and with I think it's beyond our purview to get into a long debate about that here. What I would simply say is there is another, I mean, there are other ways of looking at it. One other way, uh, there are Christians who would say more flatly that Israel was just wrong and that there are pictures of God in the Old Testament that the Israelites project onto God. And what we have to do when we read Scripture canonically is read through the lens of Jesus. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all there are yeses are yes in Christ, all God's yeses. In other words, that Jesus becomes the lens through which we read all of Scripture. And if we read in Scripture that uh, in Jesus, that it's really not the heart of God that human beings would hurt and oppress other people, own other people, as in a slave-master relationship, then that really shows us a deeper insight and that to some degree the ancient Israelites were errant. So for a person who can't reconcile themselves to the idea that God could have accommodated ancient slavery in order to reveal his fuller will, there is another option in being a Christian, which is to say that God didn't in fact do that, that they misunderstood who God is, but he pro- He sovereignly allowed those pictures of himself to enter scripture and then to be critiqued by the revelation of Christ. So it's, it's, uh, it's a big question, and I, I don't want to diminish the objection you've raised, but I do think there are responses to it. Okay, well, I, uh, I have heard 
the responses. I would, I think I would want to lean toward the second one if I were trying to give it the, the most grace possible. The, the problem is, it's not that Israel was wrong about slavery, it's that Israel was wrong about God. Uh, because they they put the words of you know owning you know how to own uh, a Jewish slave versus how to own a foreigner in God's mouth, uh, and so if if God didn't do that, then we can't trust anything they said about God, and I think that's the bigger problem. And as far as the the Philemon uh, Philemon uh, account of it. In some ways, I think that's more damaging than the Old Testament mandate uh, to treat uh, treat foreign slaves as as actual slaves. Uh, you know, you treat your your Jewish slaves as employees, but those other guys, they're slaves. Uh, that's made pretty clear. That, and as damaging as that is, I think it's even more damaging to say uh, you you can regard your brother as a slave. That doesn't that makes no sense. To me, and I think it it damages the psyche to try to curl your mind around the idea that uh, someone you should regard as your brother, you can also regard as a slave. Uh, and this is what I mean by it would have been better to tear down uh, the institution when it was possible to do so. When God was handing out the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, uh, it seems he could have slipped in thou shalt not own people somewhere around thou shalt not kill. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, the one thing kind of said earlier at the beginning that I just want to address is sort of arguing, well, if Israelites got X or Y wrong, then we can't trust them in anything. And um, I would want to come back, first of all, to 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. As I said, Scripture is God-breathed and is thereby useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, uh, again, I think we have to be careful about assuming for Scripture to be inspired, to be functioning as part of the, this is God's inspired authoritative word, means that every picture or depiction of God in Scripture is to be taken at face value. I gave the example from Psalm 37, uh, where it says, God laughs at the coming at the coming destruction of the wicked, for he knows that day is coming. And I'm saying, well, that is actually not who I believe God has revealed to be in Jesus. So this becomes the key. The key for a Christian is to interpret all of Scripture in light of the revelation we find in Jesus Christ. Um, as Jesus says himself in John 14, 8 and 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. So there are all sorts of pictures uh, that are very disturbing about God in Scripture. One of them is Ezekiel chapter 16, which describes God as like a man who ad adopts this forlorn uh, orphan girl and then raises her up and then marries her, which is just an awkward juxtaposition of metaphors right there. Then she becomes adulterous and he wants her to be murdered. And I, it's, a, it's a horrifying image. Now we have to say, well, is that actually describing... Uh, God, because that seems to be a very fearsome, terrifying, capricious, malicious, malevolent individual. Or do we say, no, I'm going to use the picture of God revealed in Jesus in John 14, uh, and I'd say throughout the Gospels, 
the, the, the revelation of God that is the foundation for the church and use that as my interpretive grid to understand what's going on in Ezekiel 16. Now, Christians are going to disagree about this still, but I, I just want to say that there are resources. Uh, it doesn't mean it's a simple problem, uh, but I don't think that, that what you suggested, which is this kind of hermeneutical chaos, follows because there are principled reasons to make a particular interpretation rather than another one. Okay, but I, I so if someone other than David had made those statements, uh, maybe I could try to wrap my mind around agreeing with you. But David is a man after God's own heart. Uh, this is how the Bible described. Was that David or Abraham? Uh, he was either a friend of God or a man after yeah, God's own heart. Yeah, David. Yeah. Uh, so if if the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart, and we can't accept David's descriptions of God. That's very that's very confusing. I don't I'm not entirely sure what description of God we are meant to accept then. Uh, so, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's a challenge uh, when you say, well, Israel was wrong about God. Well, Israel was was the priesthood of God. They were they were a holy nation, a nation of priests for the world. They can't be wrong about God. <laughs> so if if they're wrong about God. The, you know, the, the the world has no hope of knowing who God is. And so you can say, well, Jesus came along to fix that situation. But the fact is that situation was put in place by God to reveal himself to the world. And if if we're if we can't trust many of the insights from the people who were called out as prophets of God, who were men after God's own heart and who were God's specific representatives, uh, if we can't trust what they said about God and what they said God directly said, then it's hard to know uh, who we can trust and why we should trust uh, the people who wrote about Jesus. What? Why would that testimony be more trustworthy than the testimony of David and Moses and the prophets? Well, uh, so first of all, uh, there's a question about, well, did David write a psalm or was it a psalm traditionally attributed to David, just as uh, Ecclesiastes, for example, was traditionally attributed to Solomon? Uh, the statement that David was after God's own heart is not a statement about David's, um, certainly not about his moral infallibility. It was about while he messed up again and again, he still came back. It's Psalm 51, right? We, he get, came back and was repenting. So even if David wrote uh, traditionally Psalm 37 is attributed to him, if he did write Psalm 37, um, it doesn't change the fact that he could have been projecting this picture of God laughing at his enemies. Uh, but certainly David is a morally complex character. The question we have to ask is what is God's end in including that declaration from Psalm 37? Some of the other Psalms talk about bathing your feet in the blood of the wicked or uh, the infamous Psalm 137, blessed is he who takes the babies and bashes them against the rocks. That's well, the do we I really thinking of. Every time you said Psalm 37, I kept thinking, yeah, 137. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, well, here's, so here's an example of Psalm 137. What you begin with is you begin with the, the Israelites in exile. Uh, and then what they want to do is immediately visit upon their own the people who have victimized them, the same suffering that they themselves have experienced. So the reader has to ask a question. Is Psalm 137 in the text in order to show me how to hate my enemies by hoping that their babies' brains get bashed in? Or is it included within the canon of Scripture to show me the human heart? That just as uh, 
when I am oppressed, I immediately want to oppress others. I want to hit back. And I suspect the psalm is in there for that reason, for a rather different reason. Now, the, the kind of objection you've raised, I think, is an objection that readers often have generally when they come to texts and they realize that texts, not just the Bible, but many texts, you know, can be very complicated to interpret, especially when a reader, a writer starts using things like irony. Uh, they use particularly particular literary strategies, metaphors, idioms, other similes and expressions, hyperbole, and a lot of that could sail over the incautious reader's head. And that reader in that moment might say, well, then who can understand anything? Well, I would just say what you have to do is buckle down and begin to try to understand the original meaning of this text in context, read it within the canon of all of Scripture, and gradually in community we can work toward a fuller understanding of the text. Okay. Well, I, once again, I, I would charitably look at the text in that way, except when we see the man after God's own heart or someone writing in his name, uh, saying things like, yeah, bash the baby's enemy, uh, babies of the enemies uh, on the rocks. Uh, we also see, you know, war doctrines that say uh, run pregnant women through uh, and, you know, rip, rip out the, the, the unborn and uh, kill the women and children and, you know, things like that. Once again, I'm not trying to, to, to use this to get into a fuller discussion of these things. I'm simply saying that this, this, Intuition that David has of who God is seems to be uh, borne out in other places where God gives orders that are like that. Well, we have in, in a verse uh, like Genesis fifty twenty. Uh, this is where we, we know the story that Joseph ended up in exile and Egypt because of the malicious actions of his brothers eventually became back into context with his brothers when he was the third most powerful individual in Egypt. And then he says these words, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And one can take that same principle that God can allow things that we do, which are in fact evil, but God can use and appropriate those very actions for his sovereign, wise, good purposes. And there could be, for example, depictions of God, such as, or of, of human action, such as, let's bash those babies' brains against the rocks, which the original psalmist in their anger and frustration, understandably so, nonetheless intended for evil, the evil of a retributive act against their oppressor. But God appropriated that within the canon of Scripture, and when we read that in light of Christ, we can see how it reveals the human heart, our own uh, penchant or tendency to objectify our enemy and our need to repent, and God means it for good. And that is, I think, one way to understand what it means for all Scripture to be God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Okay, for the for the sake of time, I'm going to uh, truncate some of my um, observations on technical falsehoods. You did go over that a little bit earlier. I would suggest that there is a way to teach without teaching technical falsehoods, though. Um, now, it you know, with some caveats, maybe you can't teach a two-year-old things without some technical falsehoods. Uh, but I think that once you get to the level of teaching. Uh, someone with a basic understanding of things, just just as an example, we're both writers, you and I, um, and we we quote uh, a lot of people. And so if we quote someone and then misquote them, uh, that is that is a wrong thing. It's one of the worst crimes that a writer 
can commit. Just ask my boss. Um, so, but if we say, I'm paraphrasing this person, did we have the room to say something like what that person said? So that's not a technical falsehood at all when we, um, when we say that we're, we're paraphrasing. That's just an example from our profession. But even when you're teaching a child a, a principle like spelling, uh, an I before E, by the way, as a writer, I ended up a terrible speller. Uh, thank uh, God or Zeus for a spell check, whoever is responsible for that. Um, but the, the technical falsehood example that you gave doesn't even have to be a technical falsehood as long as you teach uh, that this is a rule that will get you the right answer maybe 60 or 70 percent of the time. There are many exceptions to that, and we will uh, talk about those exceptions as we progress. And, and just by saying that, you're not teaching a technical falsehood at all. Uh, you're, you're giving the student a realistic expectation of what the situation is beforehand. And I think that by doing that, you can avoid a lot of technical, technical falsehoods. And I think in, in terms of scripture, um, you know, a lot of confusion could have been eliminated just, just with a, a little paragraph before some of the laws. These laws are for you only for a period of 400 years. Uh, and they, and, uh, you know, they, they have limits in their, in their scope. That would have, that would have been better. Uh, so I don't think that technical falsehoods are a necessity uh, in in the way that you're suggesting. You want to push back on that? Well, uh, certainly, it's, I think we would just kind of be retreading our own mutual intuitive disagreements at this point as to whether that constitutes a really powerful or sufficient objection to Christianity being true because it is a progressive revelation. I mean, I would think that... Um, for example, I get into the car or my daughter gets into the car and she says, do you know the bears hibernate? And, um, you know, one might push back and say, I should have said, well, I do know that, but thank you for sharing. But I think the, the fact is that if I had done that, that would have really changed the dynamic of my interaction with her. And if I always did that, that actually would have begun to undermine and and stiltify my relationship with my daughter. And I don't know that um, if you, God's including all the qualifications that you're expecting for God to include, that that ultimately would have been uh, sufficient for him to achieve the purposes for which he wants to achieve in his relationship with humanity in a gradual revelation over time. Sure. So I, I'm not persuaded as a, with that as an objection. I don't think our examples, though, are of the same kind. Uh, and so they, they kind of go past each other. I, I am speaking less about uh, a personal relationship and more about direct instruction. Uh, and when you when you give instruction, you want people to have the right answer and the right idea about the answer that you're giving. And you can give it in a way where they're confused and you can give it away where they're not confused. And um, I, I think it's just a, a, a difference in in what your ultimate goal is. I think that we could we could do a little bit of a rewrite of the Bible, you and I together. And we could come up with a, a, a much more understandable book just by just by putting in some notes that this particular command is uh, not directly from God. In fact, this is 
this is how Moses viewed things, and it does not, in fact, represent a doctrine of war for all people for all time, or this, this slavery that we're going to talk about is not a model to be followed. You know, just, just some general notes that would have made things clearer for people reading it 2,000, 3,000 years later. Uh, so I, I think that some of what you would cover as technical falsehood, I would cover as unnecessarily confusing. Well, I guess I'll, I'll, I can kind of make one more point as we wind down, and that's that I, I think what we have it because you you pushed back against my my daughter example. Uh, what we have I here is this I didn't disagree with your daughter example. Sure, just, sure, just but you're you're, you're saying it's just covering different territory. You're saying, yes. and and so what I just want to would would frame that dis disagreement again by saying um, you're kind of focusing on what we would call propositional knowledge. Yes. Why doesn't God give us knowledge of that? And then you have a sentence. Um, whereas what I was talking about is not simply propositional knowledge, but more relational or knowledge of acquaintance, which is knowledge of experience and relationship with an individual. Now, knowledge of acquaintance is not exclusive of propositional knowledge. You can gain propositional knowledge through it, of course, but it is more than propositional knowledge. And essentially, if we look through Scripture, it is not simply an information dump. It is the experience of people encountering God in history, in time. Uh, so it is critically and, and at its core relational knowledge or knowledge of acquaintance through which propositional knowledge comes. And I do think that there is an argument to be made that uh, God's accommodating the propositional knowledge we receive as we experience him through knowledge of acquaintance gradually revealed through scripture and in our own lives. Okay. Um, let me, let me bring up one more point since we're not going to uh, be doing uh, announcements and reading out uh, reader comments on this show. I, I want to take 10 more minutes if you've got it to cover one more uh, thing I call it necessary attachment in, it, uh, in regard to this uh, idea of accommodation. So um, let me just read this uh, statement. Accommodation is unacceptable when it necessarily attaches good ideas to bad ones. Uh, it is uh, necessary attachment, or what I'm calling necessary attachment, when the good idea cannot be separated later from the bad idea uh, and still remain intact without a rewrite. So... Uh, it, it, an example of this, and I'll just give one, uh, because uh, Dale and I had this discussion just a couple of days ago for a podcast that will be uh, appearing this week as well. Uh, we talked about the fall uh, and original sin, and I believe that the doctrines of the fall and original sin are inexorably attached to a literal reading of the first three chapters of Genesis. And I don't think that you can have those doctrines sensibly uh, if you if you don't read Genesis literally. The problem is a literal reading of Genesis requires a false notion of how the world came about and how the world uh, actually exists uh, in its in its physical nature. It, it has a it eliminates the evolutionary process altogether, whether you call that theistic evolution or not. And I don't think that uh, the fall makes any sense. Uh, when you have that. And if you try to detach the fall from the false notions, you don't have a fall anymore. You have to significantly rewrite the story. And so it is necessarily attached 
to that bad idea. So you cannot progress that revelation. You have to fix it. Uh, and I think that this is a, a problem in scripture, in Christianity, in religion in general. I think that Christianity comes along, especially some of the more progressive uh, Christians, and they look at a bad idea in the Bible and they try to fix it and call it progressive revelation. And that's, that's not actually progressive revelation. That's just damage repair. Well, I would, uh, there's a lot I could say here, which would take a lot more than 10 minutes. But I mean, one thing I would just want to push back on is, is, as what you've described as a quote, literal reading of Genesis one to three or chapter three in particular, I'm not exactly sure what here literal means because of course literal is tied to an appreciation of the kind of genre we're reading if i say my love is a red red rose um, you don't interpret that literally in the sense of uh, it just becomes incoherent if you try to interpret that as a literal color red but if you interpret it with respect to the genre of literature it is then by another definition it is literal if you properly interpret the original intention of the author so I, I think we have to go back to, well, what are these cosmogonic creation and fall narratives doing? And Christians certainly do disagree about this. There are Christians such as John Walton, who who fully reconciles as a, he's a conservative evangelical, I would say. He teaches at Wheaton College. Uh, he accepts a historical, literal Adam and Eve and a fall, but he also understands Adam to be the first elect human being and that there are human beings that existed before him uh, in backwards in an evolutionary sequence, you know, to, to simian ancestors. Uh, but nonetheless, Adam becomes a representative of human beings, uh, or at least that's only a view that he argues one can hold. Uh, another fellow I know, I know quite well, uh, Dennis Lamru has three doctorates, including in theology and in evolutionary biology. And he argues for a very strong accommodation view along these lines. So just as God accommodated the ancient Israelites understanding of a three-storied universe of a hard rakia or dome that holds up the oceans above. So God accommodated ancient Near Eastern biology, which included the existence of a primal pair of human beings as a way to explore, to explain the disorderedness and need for redemption we find in creation. But we can understand that Lamru argues as an accommodation to those understandings. Uh, the point that remains, however, is that the narrative of the fall does communicate in Lamru's view a universal truth, which is that there is a brokenness in creation and a need for redemption, which is something human beings generally experience. Uh, just the other day, I was reading again philosopher Mary Warnock. She's talking about in the wake of World War II, when uh, um, British people were discovering the horrors of the Holocaust, she said, when I looked inside my own heart, I had to consider that I could very well have done what the Nazis did, that I was not intrinsically different from them. And that's the narrative, that's the story of Genesis chapter three, that we are creatures in need of redemption. Whether that story needs to be tied to original historical pair of individuals who fell, Christians disagree on that, but we can still find the universal import of the story. And I don't think it's lying if God did, in fact, accommodate to the ancient Near Eastern understanding of biology. Sure. But if God really wanted them to know, he could have just said, hey, you know, by the way, it didn't happen that way. It happened this way. And you are fallen. Uh, you didn't, you know, you are, you are sinful. You're not fallen in that you were once perfect and then someone made you imperfect and you're suffering for their sins, that's a, that's a very different story. So if God had wanted to 
give a more accurate account of that. He could have done so, and uh, he, he could have done it in less time than I just did it, uh, and he could have done it better. So I don't, I don't actually uh, see your point as an example of God's accommodation. I just uh, see that as humans doing the best they can to understand their situation with their best guesses, and I, I see normal informational evolutionary process. I don't see any kind of special revelation, especially when major parts of the revelation are wrong. I mean, you talked about the genre of the Bible. We can't even agree on what genre that story is. Uh, so yes, I, I can see where you could say, well, if it's, if it's a certain type of genre, such as allegory, then we read it one way. But I assure you, the people that I grew up with and who are still alive today do not read it as allegory. So they would they would firmly disagree with you on genre, and they also have degrees. So with that in mind, uh, Randall, you've been uh, uh, a great uh, guest, and I am going to uh, give you the last word since I have the first word, as uh, as is the the habit of this podcast. So I will just say I I appreciate uh, your arguments. I appreciate your position. I think that I. Uh, fully, uh, to the degree that one can fully understand a position uh, in an hour. I think I understand your position, but I think that we have irreconcilable uh, disagreements on this, and I think that they were outlined pretty well um, in the discussion, so I don't really feel like I need to go back over anything. I will just say thank you for uh, a stimulating conversation. The last word is yours. Well, great. Thank you, David. Uh, I guess the one thing I'd want to say is, is to begin by thanking you for a good exchange. I think you're a model for ironic disagreement where we can have some pretty big disagreements about things um, and yet still be friends at the end of the day. And we certainly need more of that in our world. Um, the other thing I just want to say is um, I think that, yeah, you can interpret this data that we've just been talking about in the way that you proposed as a sort of natural evolution. I've wanted to argue, however, that the evidence we have does not is not inconsistent with it also being consistent with God having revealed himself in history in the way that I described. And in that case, we would then have to go on to say, well, there are these two different interpretations of this data. How do we settle which one is correct? I would say, well, then let's look at evidence for the existence of God and evidence for the truth of Christianity, uh, because I don't think that the arguments we've considered today are in and of themselves sufficient to establish a truth or falsehood of Christianity. But thanks a lot for the exchange. I really enjoyed it. No problem. And uh, before I say goodbye, let me just add, uh, not to the discussion, but but so there are a few people who knew that we were going to have this discussion and uh, they have been chomping at the bit to hear it and they have uh, they have asked me to see if we can't have a discussion on various subjects everyone has their favorite subject that they either want to see me get clobbered on or that they want to see me clobber uh, you own and so hopefully we will have a chance in the future to have some other of those discussions but just as a personal request of mine uh, careers are made by uh, by nemesis by great rivals I do not have a great rival so I am, I am going to ask on air in front of all of the listeners Randall will you be my nemesis I would be honored. (laughs) 
And with that, people, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Uh, good conversation. Uh, Randall, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was great. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Time flies, I got to tell you.